Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, now as we open your word, will you speak? We have praised your name. We have prayed our request to you. We have heard the possibilities of kingdom expansion into a very important area of ministry. Now as we open your word, feed our hearts. Help us reprioritize. May we see more clearly your plan for the next steps in our lives, in our church. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. I would like to see the hands of all of those who enjoy paying taxes. Not a hand, I, I, I don't understand, right? Probably most of us realize taxation is necessary in a country, I mean, uh, if you want your country to provide some kind of protection from enemies outside its boundaries as well as enemies within to provide things like police officers and so on, and uh, taxes are necessary. If you want some degree of comfort and stability within your country, there's probably going to have to be a tax base. If you want things like utilities and paved roads, and I know sometimes those are questionable, I, I get it. But if you want that kind of stuff, some degree of taxation is probably going to be necessary. Most of us would probably agree on that. Where we disagree is who pays and how much. Obviously, those are the disagreement points. United States has a national budget. Not that we follow it closely, but we have a budget. And it's big dollars, really big dollars. To make a point, I want to go back to 1985 when the U.S. budget finally hit $1 trillion, just over a trillion dollars. Now, a trillion is a very big number to get your hands around, and frankly, most of us probably can't. So here's a simple illustration of how much a trillion dollars is. If you went back to the time of Christ, and every day from the time of Christ on spent $1.4 million a day, you spent it every single day, and you spent it through the whole Roman Empire, and through the Dark Ages, and the Medieval Ages, and through the Renaissance, and through the Enlightenment, and the Industrial Revolution, all the way up to our year when the U.S. budget hit a trillion dollars, 1985, you spent $1.4 million every day, you'd be just over $1 trillion. This is a big, big number. Today, of course, our national budget is much larger, and our debt, our national debt, is much larger yet. Our national debt is now $32-plus trillion. I don't really have an illustration for that one for you other than to say if you went back to the time of Christ and you spent $45 million a day and went through the Dark Ages and everything else all the way up to 1985, you would peak $32 trillion. So our nation continues to collect taxes, whether we like it or not. We do it through an organization called the IRS at both state and federal levels. Most of us know that. And tax collectors are probably not the most favored people in the country. They wouldn't make the top 50 occupations necessarily. And there's all kinds of jokes and so on and so forth. This brings us to the point of a text today that we're going to be studying in our study of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus actually calls a tax collector to be one of his 12 disciples. Now, today we would look at that and we would say, well, we're not big on tax collectors, some of us, but... And there's a couple locally here at Calvary that have been involved in tax collecting. But in the day of Jesus, tax collectors maybe weren't just scoffed at a bit or we have jokes about them. In Jesus' day, 
you were a social outcast. You were in real trouble, as our text will take us into study today. I want you to hear the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Follow along as I read at home and here at Calvary. Once again, Jesus went out uh, beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. May God add his blessing to the teaching, to the reading of his word. Now we open our time of commentary on this text. I want to begin by talking about Matthew as a tax collector. This is Matthew. I know the text called him Levite. We'll explain in a moment. Let's begin with him. The first couple of verses, uh, starting in verse uh, 13, 14, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake there, and uh, a large crowd came to him. He's teaching them. And as he walks along, he saw Levi. There's our man, son of Elpheus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. He's a tax collector. That's his job. That's his career. Levite's an interesting name. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a Jew. It is the temple worship tribe. They lead worship. They carry the articles of the temple, or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They assist the priests, all of that. This is the tribe of... He's named after that tribe, and yet as a Jew, he is serving the Roman government. This did not put him in a good place with society. He is considered to be a social outcast. In Matthew chapter 9, this story is told. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell this story. Luke and Mark call him Levi. Matthew calls him Matthew. Matthew wrote his own book. This Matthew, Levi, wrote one of the four Gospels. He called himself Matthew because he is a changed man. He is no longer a tax collector. The Roman government followed a form of tax collection called tax farming, which basically meant the Roman government would break up the country that was to be taxed into various provinces, regions, whatever, and they would open bid for tax collectors who would bid the highest to collect the taxes in those areas. So you would have to collect a certain amount as set by the Roman government. You could tax people whatever you wanted, and anything above and beyond what you owe the Roman government, you got to keep. So tax collectors were very wealthy. This is what tax farming is. Tax farmer, the people who won the bid, the, the people, whether they're Jews, Gentiles, didn't matter. Rome didn't care as long as they got their money. The tax collector would often hire some muscle, some thuds, to assist him in collecting the tax. You're driving your, walking your cart down the road, 
pulled by your mule or whatever, and the tax collector and his muscle stops you and says, four wheels, what's in your cart? And then taxes you, sets an arbitrary amount of money, and he's getting rich on it, and you're getting poor on it. That's what tax collectors did. Matthew's one of those. He's a Jew, but he's working for Rome. The Jews hate him. You know, in a tax collector, they weren't even allowed in the synagogues, let alone the temple. They're social outcasts. People hated them. Levite, Matthew, is a traitor. A traitor to his people. Hard way to live, but at least you got some money. Interestingly, Jesus picks this guy as one of the 12. This is a fascinating thing. How do you think the other 11 are going to take this guy into the group of 12? Probably not well. In fact, one of the other disciples, not Simon Peter, there was a Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples. A zealot was one who was aggressively trying to overthrow Rome. And this guy comes in that's a tax collector for Rome. How do you think that's going to go? But Jesus looks beyond the social outcast of this man. And he sees a man that he knows will be one of the 12. A man that will write one of the four gospels. A man that someday will be a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Paul reminds us that we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. This is what God's created us for, to do good works. Jesus saw that in Matthew. He looked beyond the shady person. He looked beyond the very bad things this man had done. And this meant a career change for Matthew. There's no going back from this moment on. There's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're fishermen, and God called their, Christ called them to follow him, and they did, just like here, Matthew. He's called out, and he follows right away. That's commendable. Peter, Andrew, James, and John did the same thing, and we learned back when we saw the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John that it wasn't their first time knowing and hearing Jesus. He calls them out of relationship with him. He probably did the same thing with Matthew. Matthew had seen him around, heard about the miracles the whole bit. He says, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew goes and follows him. And this represents a career change for Peter, Andrew, James, John. They can go back to fishing someday. Matthew can't. He's burning his bridges in this moment when he leaves his tax booth. He can't go back. After the resurrection of Jesus, what are Peter, Andrew, James, and John doing? They're fishing. What's Matthew doing? Nothing. He gave up a career. He burned his bridges to Rome to follow Jesus. Sometimes the people that hurt the most and need the most help are willing to give it all up and walk away from it for the cause of Jesus. That is a beautiful thing. That's the story that we're looking at here. It's incredible. In fact, if you look at the account as it's told in Luke's gospel, in in Luke chapter 5, Luke says, he left everything and followed Jesus. And somewhere along the line, his name got changed to Matthew. It was Levi. How did that happen? Don't really know. We know that with Simon Peter, his name was Simon, Jesus changed it to Peter and made a lesson out of it. Perhaps Jesus changed 
Levite's name to Matthew. What a mocking thing to say of Levi. Yeah, some great Israelite, the religious, yeah, he's the tax collector. Jesus changes his name to Matthew, which means gift of God. I'm prone to think probably Jesus was the one who changed his name. And of course, when Matthew told the story in his gospel, he named himself as Matthew, not Levi. I want to move to verse 15 now, where we move beyond Matthew and we move to his friends. He didn't have many friends. The friends that he had were friends like himself, other social outcasts. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, there it is, tax collectors and sinners, sinners being probably some of the muscle that tax collectors hired to help them in the collection of taxes. They're sitting at the table and they're eating with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. Many of these social outcasts chose to follow. They're in Levi's house. Isn't that interesting? Levi's throwing a party. In fact, if you look at the Mark, or I'm sorry, the Luke account, Luke actually says, he held a great banquet. He threw a big party. This man wanted his friends to discover the same Lord Jesus that he had discovered. Matthew wouldn't have had community friends. He would have only had friends who were socially unacceptable. Average people in the community don't want these people around. Matthew throws a party for them. Most would consider not a good man on the lot. And Jesus and his disciples are there calling people to follow Jesus. The phrase tax collectors and sinners in this passage is used three times. Here, it's used once. In the next couple verses, you'll see it in a moment, it's used two more times by the religious critics, the ones who don't want this, these socially unacceptable people around. And they question why Jesus would spend time with them. Let's move to the last two verses of this text. Verses 16 and 17. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, there's the second time, they asked his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? There it is for the third time. On hearing this, Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have called to come. I have come to call the righteous, not the sinners. Wow. No, that's not what it says, is it? Did you pick it up? <laughs> I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The critics begin. It's the religious leaders. They don't like these social outcasts. So they speak with all of their arrogance and their condemnation and their judgmental attitudes and their selfishness. They're not asking, you know, Jesus, why are you doing that? They're accusing Jesus of being with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answers with a simple analogy that is very powerful. It's a medical analogy. 
Jesus implies that Matthew and his friends are patients and they need spiritual care. And he is there to provide it. When you and I think more deeply about this passage, we realize that everybody that's there except Jesus, his disciples, the tax collectors and sinners, the religious leaders, everybody is in an unhealthy state called sin. Religious leaders were sinners too. They just refused to see it. They saw themselves as above the social outcasts. And yet there was Jesus and his disciples dining with these people. Jesus chose to focus on those who needed, knew they needed a doctor. Now here's the bottom line question. When it comes to social outcasts of our world, are you more like the religious leaders or more like Jesus and his disciples engaging the outcasts? Religious leaders tend to be very judgmental. They think they're pretty good. They would never want to be caught associating with such social outcasts. Sometimes in Christian churches, Christians can act this way. They don't want to spend any time with social outcasts. In fact, they don't even want to spend time with unbelievers. Such Christians want to spend their time in churches, in Sunday school classes, in prayer meetings, in small groups. They fellowship only with Christians. They entertain only with Christians. They have Christian doctors and Christian lawyers and Christian accountants. They have Christian veterinarians. Their dogs and cats are Christians. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nothing wrong with spending time with Christians. I happen to think we're pretty good people to spend time with. The problem is when we don't want to spend time with unbelievers and certainly social outcasts. That makes us more like the religious group than like Jesus and his disciples, if that's the way we were to live. Through the years, I have noted that some Christian people are more concerned about their own reputation, the reputation of their church, the reputation of their pastor than they are about the people that need a doctor a spiritual doctor. They certainly don't want their church facilities used to reach out to such people. It was an 18th century writer. He wrote a lot of satire. His name was Dean Jonathan Swift. Here's one of his satirical poems. It is very short. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We can't have heaven cramped. Jesus Christ would look at that and say, that is sick. No room for those that aren't like us, that don't look like us and maybe smell like us or even have the same color skin as us. In our current world, there is such a need for churches like Calvary that care 
Churches like Calvary that say, nobody's better than anybody else. And we're not perfect by any means. But many of us get this. And we care. We are willing to open our homes to an unwed mother. We are willing to be involved with homeless ministry. We are willing to volunteer in the many mercy ministries that this church runs to help community organizations like the one we heard about earlier today from James. You see, as the quote says, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. When we truly love and care for people, their hearts become more open to the message of the love of God. So Jesus sits with social outcasts. He cares. We really need to understand this about Jesus. We need to understand that his operating procedure was, we will not win those with whom we will not eat. There's something about eating with someone that develops fellowship and connection. Perhaps we would be very wise to move more and more towards the idea that we can't win those with whom we will not eat. You like to eat, don't you? It's a great way to evangelize. (laughs) A little different way, perhaps. Somebody has very wisely said, listen carefully, you can't just bring people to Jesus. You must bring Jesus to people. We have to connect. There's a famous pastor and a professor that lives not far from here, about an hour away. He's internationally famed. He goes all over the world preaching, conferences, churches. He's a controversial guy. Some of you could guess who he is from the description already. Here's a true story from his life. He was on one of his traveling tours, and, you know, He'd been on the road for a number of days through various time zones, and he found himself in a hotel, and it was the middle of the night, and like 2 o'clock in the morning, and he just couldn't get to sleep, and he's got obligations the next day. He wants to get some sleep, but he can't get to sleep, probably a jet lag thing. So he's tossing and turning, and he realizes, I'm a little hungry. Maybe if I get up and get something to eat, then I can get a couple hours sleep here or whatever. So he gets up, gets dressed, and leaves the hotel and looks down the street, and there's a little diner, 24-7 diner there. So he walks down to the diner. He goes in. It's 2.30 in the morning. There's hardly anybody in the diner, as you could understand. So he sits down at the counter, and he orders some food. One or two other people at a couple of tables. And down at the far end of the counter are four or five young ladies. And they're cackling away and laughing and talking loudly. And the preacher can't help but overhear their conversation. He's not tapping in, but they're loud. And he realizes very quickly they are women of the street. They are prostitutes. And as they're cackling along and the preacher's eating his food, he hears one of them say, I should tell you all, today's my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. And she says, I should also tell you that in my life I've never had a birthday party. The preacher was shocked. 
Rather than just staying shocked, he calls the owner of the diner road and says, hey, you got any cake back, you know, out back there? Yeah? How's some ice cream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on me. I'll pay. Don't worry. Just let's throw a little party for the girls. Really? Yeah. So they get the cake and the ice cream. They go down there and they sing happy birthday. A couple candles on the cake. And all the other girls are all uh, clapping. And the girl cries. It's her birthday. Never had a party before. Nobody cared. Social outcast. As things are winding down, most of the cake's gone, most of the ice cream's been consumed, uh, the preacher says to the girls, gals, I'm a pastor. Would you mind if I just prayed for you all? They're shocked. Well, yeah, I mean, we could use some prayer. (laughs) Yeah. So he prays for them. While he prays, he prays for their salvation. I don't think those four or five girls ever forgot that night, and I know the gal with the birthday party. She never forgot it. After they left, the preacher goes over to pay the bill to the owner, and the owner says, so so you're a preacher? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a preacher. The owner says, "Uh, what kind of church do you belong to? You know, thinking Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or whatever, you know. And the pastor wisely says, I belong to a church that sends its pastor out to have parties at 2.30 in the morning for prostitutes. Please let that sink in because, and and I, I haven't done this, but most churches would not want that. In fact, some Christians are offended by the story I just told. But this is where we come back to the bottom line question. In our Christian faith, are we more like Jesus or are we more like the religious Pharisees? This is really hard. If you want to be more and more like Jesus, that means you're going to have to stretch in these areas to find ways to serve, to reach out, to take Jesus to them rather than just trying to pull them toward Jesus. Maybe this week, God will bring someone into your path and it's going to be difficult to take some time. Maybe they're different than you. Maybe you have no idea how to help them. This will be your stretch for this week. Don't forget, when that need comes up, you can act like Jesus or you can act like the religious leaders. This is part of your stretch. And maybe as you have a few of these instances, other stretches will come and you will continue to grow. And maybe someday in the not-too-distant future, you'll go on a trip somewhere and you'll have to stay in a hotel one night. And instead of watching TV in your hotel room, maybe you will actually have the guts to post a sign in the elevator that says, in my room, 503, whatever it is, there'll be a party at 7.30. All are welcome. Get a few snacks just in case anyone comes. Ask Jesus to show up. Be a Matthew. Who will come? Perhaps no one. 
perhaps someone who is a tired traveler or someone that's lonely, maybe somebody that's curious. I wonder what God would do just as you sit down and you have a little food together. You can be sure of two things. Number one, God really loves that person. And number two, Jesus Christ would be doing something like that. I know this is a stretch for many. The great missionary C.T. Studd said it this way, some want to live within the sound of church bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. One's a little bit more like a religious leader. One's a little bit more like Jesus. I want to live within the sound of a church bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I don't doubt for a moment I have more stretch in my life in this area to be like Jesus. How about you? As I close here today, I want to invite any of you who do not know Jesus as your Savior to come to him. Maybe today he is calling you to come and follow him. And you need to leave things behind. Perhaps you feel unacceptable, but Jesus loves us all. It takes a big person to make a really big decision. He loves you and he's ready to receive you. Will you receive him? He stands ready to forgive you as the perfect holy God that can't have sin in his presence. And he's made a way for your sin to be forgiven. You may think your sin is great or it's not such a big deal. Either way, your sin keeps you out of his presence. But Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins so our sin penalty could be paid for and the way could be open for us to connect with God and even be with him for eternity. Jesus might be calling you today. If so, don't turn him down. Don't put up a barrier between you and Jesus. Don't be a Pharisee thinking you don't need this. You're better than this. Come, follow Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you've not made that decision, I encourage you to make that decision right now in the quietness of your home or sitting here in the auditorium. You can do it just offering a prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin separates me from you. Tell him that you believed Jesus took the penalty for your sin. Tell him you believe that and ask him to forgive you. And he will. Thank you, Father, for grace and mercy toward us. Stretch us and teach us the, the idea of stretching to take mercy and grace to people around us. Whether by society standards they're socially acceptable or not. Help us to be carriers of Jesus to people. Thank you in his name. Amen.